Well, here we are. And we have officially caught Olympics fever. This is Well, Here We Are, a weekly podcast which explores the ways pop culture and the humanities matter for our daily lives by distilling them into lists of three ish things. Welcome back to Sue Splaining. I'm Sue's. <laughs> I feel like we should have a little theme music when we do Sue Splaining and Hand Splaining. Maybe when we get more, more followers, musically yeah. inclined, they can write us a little theme music. Yeah, and we'll, little jingles. We'll, that'd be great. This week, Suzanne is going to talk to us about screwball comedy, not slapstick comedy. That's a different thing. But they often are related. And they often are confused by me specifically. <laughs> uh, specifically, we're, we're going to be diving into screwball comedy's relationship to contemporary romantic comedy. What exactly is a screwball? Why do the people in them fall down so much? And how is Katherine Hepburn involved in all this? I'm Hannah. And I'm Suzanne. And you can find articles referenced in today's episode, as well as ways to support our pod, by visiting wellherepod.com. All right, my friend, where are you taking us today on our podcast journey? That is an excellent question and one I fully intend to answer. But first, Hannah, I'm very sad to report that I need to issue a correction. Uh-oh. In a recent episode, I stated that the idea in cinema of the male gaze, G-A-Z-E, was written about by Marianne Doan in 1982. And that is actually not correct. It was written about by Laura <laughs> Mulvey in 1975. I was thinking of Marianne Doan's theorization of the female masquerade in film, which was written in 1982 and it built on Mulvey's work. But to the dozens of people who listen to our Kevin Can F Himself episode, I sincerely want to apologize. I, <laughs> I messed up. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I received hundreds, if not thousands, of texts of people the whole day with, with pitchforks and, yeah. and torches ablaze. They were all coming for us. They were like, what? You think all women are the same? All their ideas are interchangeable? <laughs> you call yourself feminist? Man. This this retraction is, is our first, but truly not our last. Oh, no. And I'm sure we should have issued others, but, you know, <laughs> what we don't know won't hurt us. Isn't that the way this, this works? <laughs> That's a thing that people do say. All right. So one of my big can't shut up about it, won't shut up about it interests is contemporary romantic comedy's relationship to the screwball comedies of the 1930s and 40s. So screwball comedies are still to this day seen by many viewers, film students, critics, and artists as the greatest examples of the rom-com genre to ever be written, produced. And at this point, they're almost 100 years old, which is a wild thing to say. So I want to get into the screwball comedy's relationship to contemporary romantic comedy. Why do we hold the screwball comedy up as like the paragon of this genre? And I guess to get started, Hannah, I'm interested in hearing from you what you know about screwball comedy. You know it is not the exact same thing as slapstick, even though that they are related. <laughs> Have you watched screwball comedies before? Which ones kind of stick out to you? What immediately comes to mind when you think of screwball? The floor is yours. I guess for a long time, I thought that screwball and slapstick were the same thing. And so when you said that you wanted to do an ep episode about screwball in my head, I was thinking slapstick. And I was like, huh, okay. 
I didn't uh, know she had this interest, but that's great. Yeah, it's, it's not my it's not my number one favorite genre, but I'm happy to to talk about it and to learn about it. But then you you explained and gave me some examples of screwball comedies, such as It Happened One Night. I think is one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's thought by most to be the first that it ah, kind okay. of it kind of created the whole genre as we know it. Is it Nailed happened it. at one Nailed night? It. Yep, well done. Thank you. Philadelphia Story, I think, is another one. Yep. Is that mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it's kind of okay. towards the tail end of what we think is the era where we had Screwball, but it's considered by many to be one. Okay. Well, I really like those two movies. So if those are two examples, then I I, I guess I, I like Screwball comedies. I don't know what holds this genre of, of movie together. I, mm-hmm. it, they both have men and women. They do. And comedy and uh-huh. romance, mm-hmm. yeah, and a good bit of like of like silliness. I would say not just comedy, but like just silliness. Yes, yes, that is that is a key element. No baseball to be seen, though. Not a pitcher <laughs> throwing a screwball to be seen, <laughs> and no cocktails. That uh, whiskey orange juice thing, which I don't think sounds very nice. I don't know why people drink that. I mean. You know my thoughts on whiskey in general. <laughs> so what are you – I know that you and I have bonded over our love of rom-coms. What are your kind of go-to comfort rom-coms? You've Got Mail. Mm-hmm. Classic. I never don't want to watch You've Got Mail. Would we count Penelope as a rom-com? That's one of my other favorites. It's yeah. not a highly rated one, I guess. I think most people aren't familiar with it. But listener, if you but haven't seen Penelope, be. Oh. yeah, it's a it's a great film. It's so cute, so sweet. But I guess also, you know, like Notting Hill. Mm-hmm. I enjoy when Harry met Sally. Sliding doors. Okay, this is good. Good. <laughs> I, you've actually hit. <laughs> Thank on, you. You've actually hit on a lot of things that will come up that you kind of just intuitively kind of saw some connective tissue between these films, which is good. Oh, Uh, great. What I'm going to try to do throughout this discussion, and I will fail. I I already know this. (laughs) What I'm going to try to do is limit the examples I use to three specific screwball comedies and three specific contemporary rom-coms. And the reason I'm going to try to do this is so that if you, Hannah, or the listener listens to this discussion and is like, oh, that's super interesting, but I've actually only ever seen like a couple of these movies. You could watch six movies total if you had never seen any of these and have a have a really decent base to know what I'm referring to. I'm going to fail, though, because in my notes, I've also made references to a bunch of other movies. <laughs> and you have no control over the movies that I bring up. No, I have no control over you. You are a chaos agent. So the three examples for screwball comedy that I'm going to try to reference most often are It Happened One Night. Oh, yay. I'm very glad that you have seen. The Awful Truth, which is a Cary Grant, Irene Dunn movie from 1937. And His Girl Friday, which is Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. That came out in 1941. And like the movie that you referenced, Hannah, The Philadelphia Story, was kind of at the tail end of the screwball comedy era era cluster, but is kind of still seen to this day as an example, like par excellence of that era. And then the three contemporary examples that I'm going to try to reference most often are You've Got Mail, which came out in 1998. 
27 Dresses, which came out in 2008, and Set It Up, which came out in 2018. And if you're asking me, did you in part pick those because they are 10 years apart from each other and you found that to be really satisfying, the answer is yes. Okay, so you said the last movie. I already forgot the name of the last screwball that you said. His Girl Friday. His Girl Friday came out in 1941, which Mm -hmm. is around the same time as Philadelphia Story. Is that because in World War II, things stopped being funny? Yes, actually, that's 100% what happened is you kind of just saw filmmakers really struggle with how they were supposed to have these kind of zany screwball comedies when everything was so hard. They kind of tried to dabble in like romantic comedies that took place in kind of zany ways around World War II, and they were just kind of universally hated. Uh, So what they then transitioned to was the American soldier coming home and finding love Mm. and romance. And people liked that a lot more. So yeah, basically it was it was World War II. Interesting. Okay. Today's three-ish things are going to be three screwball comedy conventions. And what I think many contemporary romantic comedies offer us as a often less satisfying, often quite more confused corollary to that screwball element. The three, I've, I've set this up as like a versus, but that's not super accurate. It's They're kind of like in dialogue with each other. So the first one is the screwball comedy offers us sexiness without any sex. Versus the contemporary romantic comedy offering us sex without much sexiness. Number two, Mm. we are given by the screwball comedy, the screwball as a character versus contemporary romantic comedy who gives us the quirky heroine. And then third, I want to talk about how the screwball invites the audience and the couple to kind of reimagine what marriage could be. Versus the contemporary romantic comedy, which just wants us to fantasize about a wedding. And those are the three conversation pieces that I want us to get into. So it might be helpful to get us going for me to probably define romantic comedy and the screwball comedy specifically. The romantic comedy is a film (laughs) or TV show more and more, but a film wherein both romance and comedy are the primary concerns of the film. So both elements are integral to the film. So a question I often ask myself when kind of like what you said with Penelope, Hannah, of like, I don't know this would qualify. One of the things I often ask myself is, if I removed the romance from this, would all the comedy cease to exist? Would like all the funny mm-hmm. leave this leave this movie if I took out the romance? Or if I removed the romance, would there no longer be any plot? Like, would the movie kind of unravel completely? So uh, the movie I Love You, Man, with Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel, that movie is oriented around the fact that Paul Rudd is getting married to Rashida Jones. But if you took out the romance there would still be a whole heck of a lot of comedy that is just about Paul Rudd and Jason Segel being friends. And so I don't really think of that movie as a romantic comedy because the comedy exists apart from the romance. It's completely separate. The romance is like one thing and then what makes the movie funny is like a whole other thing. I don't don't know if that's helpful. 
Um, yes, but that's kind is. of how, how I like to think of it. Now, it's not perfect. Like, that kind of guide isn't perfect. Like, Wedding Crashers, I have a hard time calling that movie a romantic comedy. But as a movie, it's, like, relying heavily on romantic comedy conventions to exist. I just have a hard time calling it a romantic comedy because I find most of it to be reprehensible. But <laughs> that's, that's probably, like, a Whether or not way. comedies are successful in being funny, I think, is maybe outside the discussion of yeah. today's podcast yeah. episode. Yeah, maybe we can't get into theories of humor, but... Uh, <laughs> But but here's the thing, though, is that film genres are squishy and they're not super well defined. So there's one film scholar out there who he says he likes to think of genres like a family resemblance. So if you were to see a, a portrait of a large family at a family reunion, not everyone in that portrait is going to look identical. But if you look closely enough, you're like, oh, I see these two people have the same nose or there's this there's this trait that we can trace throughout this family. And so mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a useful way to like think about genre. So I would say, yeah, Penelope is absolutely a romantic comedy. But you could also say, oh, but it's actually more of like a fairy tale. And you're like, yeah, it could also be that too. But it is heavily it can influenced. Be two things. It can be two yeah. things. So that brings us to the screwball. Um, so romantic comedy existed prior to 1934, which which is when It Happened One Night came out. And most film scholars and Hannah will say that it was the OG screwball. Uh, But what the screwball comedies did that was really unique was it put the couple at the center of the comedic shenanigans. There were (laughs) rom-coms before, but now the, the source of the comedy is the couple. Like, they are the ones that are the funniest person. It's no longer a random party guest who throws a party into a state of chaos. It's the couple. The couple is throwing the party into the state of chaos. It's no longer the side character who falls down and humiliates himself. It's Cary Grant. Like, Cary Grant is going to be the person who does that. Uh, okay, okay. This is very helpful because I was in – the only preparation I did for this episode was, like, looking at a list of rom-coms. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot on there that were, like, much ado about nothing. And I was like, oh, Shakespeare is rom-com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, the Kenneth Branagh, Emma Thompson, Much Ado About Nothing, this is not the first time that we have referenced this Shakespeare play on this podcast, I think is a wonderful show and a wonderful movie. But when you when you talk about framing it around sort of the central couples, like Beatrice and Benedict are funny in their relationship, but there are all these other side characters. There's, like, comedic relief and side characters that, that – add to like the the texture of the show in a way mm-hmm. that's like it's not centered just around these two people like the comedy and the romance isn't just about those people but it, it all like buoys the the yeah. romance of it so screwball comedy also kind of changed the nature of attraction a little bit so rather than express attraction through lingering looks or overt references to romance there's there's not a lot of actually like overtly romantic scenes in a lot of screwball. Instead, attraction is expressed through quick-witted dialogue, bickering, slapstick comedy, and a sense of like play. bickering is so romantic. Yeah. But like, but the idea being that it's like these two people are drawn together and they yeah. can't stop communicating. They can't stop trying to get a rise out of the other person. And, like, the Mm -hmm. big thing is this, like, sense of play. Um, I think you used the word, like, 
wacky or like zaniness. Like there's just the sense between the two characters that they just want to have fun together. They just want to, mm-hmm. uh, in the awful truth, there's multiple scenes where nobody else in the scene is laughing except for Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. They're in a circumstance that nobody sees the humor in except for these two characters. And often they do things specifically to try to make the other person laugh. And nobody else understands why it's funny. But they're doing it for the benefit of the other person. Mm, okay. So the romance is verbal. But then it's it's matched with physical comedy, pratfalls, flips, fighting. Cary Grant just, like, throws his body around a lot. It's always very funny. Uh, So the purpose is still romance, obviously, but the compatibility is discovered through this, like, absurdity. It's the absurdity that that shows these two people that they're meant for each other rather than some large romantic overture. They're not running through an airport to, to, like, save each other. (laughs) They're purposefully sabotaging a car and running it off a cliff so that they have to spend the night together in a cabin, which is what happens in The Awful Truth. So it's it's about this, like, absurdi- absurdity, this, like, wackiness, this zaniness. Okay, okay. I'm getting it. Yeah. I think I'm getting it. Not slapstick, but it often involves slapstick. There's some overlap. Yeah, absolutely. There's some family resemblance between them, even though they're, okay. they're like, distinct. So when it comes to, like, new films, like, new rom-coms trying to break in, uh, these films kind of have a dual responsibility. You kind of both have to reference the family resemblance, and then you kind of have to forge your own path. You don't want to come in and say, in our rom-com, everybody dies, and it's never funny, but we're a rom-com. And you're like, well, no, you don't you don't actually resemble anyone in the family. <laughs> so you, you have to kind of still resemble resemble the, the family, but and then you kind of have to build. But what came before is is obviously going to influence you. His Girl Friday is most known for its like rapid speed dialogue. Watching that movie with closed captioning is hysterical because the closed captioning can't like even get it all because Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell are just like talking over each other the whole time. And it mystifies everyone who is in the room with them, but they completely understand what the other person is saying. Well, the way that those two characters talk actually completely changed the way romantic comedy did dialogue. Because it, it was it was so fun. It was so rapid fire. It was so quick paced. It was so quick witted. Like, I don't think you get Gilmore Girls without his Girl Friday kind of hmm. super clipped rapid speed dialogue. So other films later, they took that, they borrowed that, and then they incorporated it into future films. Basically, what we're asking is, like, how is the contemporary rom-com different from the screwball, but how is it the same? I already kind of gave those three, three-ish things. And the first is, I'm going to say that the screwball offers a sexiness without sex, whereas the contemporary romantic comedy often provides us with sex, but it's, like, not very sexy. Um, and you can't really have this conversation without talking about the Hollywood production code, a.k.a. the Hayes Code, <laughs> a.k.a. the Code. Hannah, I, I think you mentioned to me offhandedly that you've been reading about the Hollywood production code. Is this like a thing that you know about? I like to, when I watch movies, I like to go on IMDb and read the trivia about the making of the movie yes. afterwards because I, I just like trivia. And And every now and then I will go on and find out that some movies are the way they are because of the Hayes Code. And I think it is absolutely fascinating. Yes. And when I read the book, Rebecca, 
And then I thought about the movie, Rebecca. If you if you're familiar with that movie and you have read the book, you probably know some of the differences between those two things that I'm talking about. If not, I honestly can't recommend them all that much. But the differences between the movie and the book exist specifically because of the Hayes Code. And I just think that's fascinating. Yeah. So the the Hayes Code was actually created in 1922 and it was voluntary. It was huh. William Hayes, they had this commission, he created it, and he was like, gee, films, we'd really like you to follow all these rules for self-censorship and self-regulation, but there's not going to be any consequences if you don't follow it. We just think it's a good idea because we are all for morality and decency in America, right? So we think our I films should be- I did not know that. Yeah. So we think our films should be about morality and decent human behavior. And then a bunch of stuff happened. Basically, the U.S. government was like, look, you you either start regulating yourself or we're going to do it for you. Because at the time, films weren't actually protected by First Amendment rights. They were basically like, hey, you either start getting your house in order or we're going to come and clean it up for you. The office that was in charge of enforcing the Hayes Code, enforcing in quotation marks, they restructured. And they created the Production Code Administration. And this was headed up by Joseph Breen. And Joseph Breen was like, all right, we got to get our house in order. Let's get our house in order. So a bunch of things made this pretty easy. Um, At the time, there was still like the studio system. So there were five major studios. And the major studios actually owned almost all of the movie theaters. Oh my gosh, the, I'm learning so much. Yeah, so the so, I didn't know they owned the theaters. So they owned the movie theaters. So basically, they the movies the movie studios created the films and then they decided which films could be shown. If you had an MGM owned movie theater, they might not show a Paramount picture. They probably wouldn't show a Paramount picture because they had no interest in promoting Paramount. And then this was seen as a monopoly and it was broken up by the Supreme Court, I think, in like the Okay, 19- that was going to, in fact, be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, in like the 1940s or 1950s, this was like broken up because they were like, oh, you, you can't do that. That's you can't do that. That's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, oh, you caught us. So that was going on. Uh, so that's what allowed this to happen. And then what Joseph Breen said was, okay, well, the Production Code Administration, we're going to start actually fining movie studios. If you violate elements of the production code, we're going to fine you $25,000 and we're not oh, going to give you a seal of approval. And we're and not in 1930. That was like $45 million. Yeah, that was like a ton of money. And then another thing that happened is that the Catholic Church, which is a very powerful lobbying force, they created their own rating system. And they were like, we are going to start telling Catholics which movies that we think they should go to and which ones they should avoid. This all contributed to Joseph Breen when he was like, okay, time to clean up, clean up house. The studios being like, okay, we can do that. It was interested in regulating a lot of content, but it was specifically focused on regulating sexual content. So how did this work? And I'm quoting from an article here by uh, Jane Green. She writes, quote, The PCA, which is the Production Code Administration, reviewed scripts and films in light of the production code. The major studios submitted scripts and completed films to the PCA censors who worked with filmmakers, suggesting changes or deletions to ensure that films would not encounter any difficulties with viewers, critics, or state and local censorship boards. That was the end of the quote. So the studios would send the scripts to the PCA. 
the PCA would line by line off of their suggestions. It would go back to the studios. They would offer corrections. They would get more notes from the PCA on and on and on and on. Sometimes the PCA would say, actually, we want you to go film this scene because we think there's a way for you to film this scene that isn't going to violate the production code, but we want to see how your actors have like inflection on certain words and the facial expressions your actors use. And then we're going to approve that scene. And if that scene passes, then you can keep filming the rest of the movie. And then they would see like edits of the film, like just on and on and on, like line by line changes. It also prevented interracial couples from being shown on screen. Any any (laughs) non-straight character. So this is where you get a lot of queer coded characters in films from the 30s and 40s because they weren't allowed to be explicitly non-heterosexual. You couldn't show any sort of nudity. Explicit sex could not be shown. You could not denigrate the institution of marriage. One part of the code states that seduction is, quote, never the proper subject for comedy, end quote. Um, You could have adultery, but you couldn't show the adultery leading to any positive outcome at all whatsoever. Like if you had couples who were committing adultery, like it better make their lives miserable. Okay, mom. (laughs) I think one of my the funniest things about this is that they were also very concerned about how marriage, how sex within marriage was presented. So there's a 19- It is strictly for the production of children only. And down to like position. <laughs> so there's Ugh. a 1941 movie called Love Crazy. And in this movie the husband and wife are celebrating their wedding anniversary. They have this tradition that they do for their wedding anniversary where they go on this like five mile walk and then they have dinner at the same place. They're like recreating the night that they met. But the husband is like, actually, what if we celebrated our anniversary in reverse? And it's basically like, (laughs) let's get to the good part first. And then we can like have dinner and then we can go for our walk. The original dialogue for that scene The wife says, well, then I don't see why we shouldn't do everything backwards just the way you say. (laughs) And the the PCA. Spicy. The PCA didn't object to the fact that this married couple was going to have sex, but they they objected to the fact of, quote, the intimation of sex perversion, end quote. Oh, my gosh. This is. (laughs) As a. As a person who has taken a course in the history of sexuality in Europe, this is like some straight out of Renaissance nonsense. (laughs) It's hilarious. What's old is new again. Yep. Always, always. So what did the screwball comedy do, right? They had this huge production code, but they were writing like romantic comedies. What are you supposed to do when like most of sexuality is seemingly banned from being on screen? Well, ambiguity became their friend. This is a quote from a scholar I really like, um, Katerina Gleetry. She writes that the administration of this code affected Hollywood in a couple of ways. It restricted, obviously, as we said, who could be shown on screen. So all of the you couldn't have interracial couples, you couldn't have homosexual couples. But it also created a system of ambiguity. So she writes it had to make them, quote, put in meanings which can be read in different ways by different viewers. And so basically, people had to get very clever with what they said. And if you could make a case to the PCA that most people weren't going to get it, then you could often get away with kind of 
ambiguous dialogue. So there's a whole thing in His Girl Friday. <laughs> the couple is is divorced. There's a whole thing in His Girl Friday about the wife remembering her husband's dimple. And it's like, well, yeah, it could be the dimple on his face, but the context is very much that like Walter, played by Cary Grant, has a dimple in a much more interesting part of his body. <laughs> I really like the concept that they get around censorship codes by saying no one's going to get our jokes anyway. Yes. <laughs> Only the very... The average person won't get it, so it's fine. Films would employ what are called these, like, mechanisms of denial. You just had to make things kind of ambiguous so that when the PCA came and wrapped on your knuckles, you could insist things weren't what they seem. My so, joke isn't funny, okay? My joke isn't just funny. Just let me keep it in. <laughs> my joke isn't funny or it isn't dirty. In The Awful Truth, there's a scene where... Cary Grant and Irene Dunn are in the 90 days before their divorce is going to be finalized. And they've had this disagreement right at the beginning of the movie. Cary Grant thinks that she cheated on him with her singing teacher. And he realizes, like, he was wrong. He shouldn't have jumped to conclusions. And the singing teacher shows up at her house, at Irene Dunn's house. She says, "I please, will you just tell him that he's mistaken, that nothing happened with us? It would mean a lot to me. And then there's a knock on the door. So she hides him away in the bedroom so that she doesn't have to deal with whoever's going to see him. And it's her husband, of course, who has shown up. But then somebody else knocks on the door. And it's the guy that Irene Dunn has kind of been seeing. And Cary Grant is like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to make your life harder. I'll just go hide in the bedroom. (laughs) Eventually, those two men start fighting. They come running out into the living room. And the suspicion that every single person has there is that Irene Dunn is having an affair with someone. They don't know who she's having an affair with. They don't know if she's having an affair with the singing teacher or the husband. Like, But everyone there is is suspicious of her. But the thing that the awful truth could do is say, but she didn't. She didn't have an affair. It's very clear that she didn't have an affair. We never say the word adultery. We never say the word affair. This is just a comic miscommunication. And nothing untoward has actually happened. In order for it to be funny, the audience has to be in on the joke of, well, everyone thinks that she's having an affair, but we know she didn't, and therefore it's funny. Yes, I'm following. I'm following. Yeah. So that's a lot of what they did. They also often would turn away from the romantic moment on purpose. But that was in large part because they wanted to, there was like the zaniness, this wackiness, that the screwball comedy was kind of built on this like unstable energy. The screwball comedy, much like you, Hannah, thrived in chaos. (laughs) That it was (laughs) chaos that made it so much fun. It was this like liberation. It was the spontaneity. This was the play. So like the romantic clinch, the big dramatic kiss was like not the point. The point was how chaotic and how much fun everything was. So yeah, that is- and, and like, I, I, I don't know if you were planning to talk about in um, It Happened One Night, the like, I don't know, do I want to spoil it? But the, the um, there's, I don't, I, do they ever kiss at the end? Or it's just like yep. the finale is just that the sheet that they had put up between the beds comes down. Yeah, we never And see you don't even kiss. see the two people. Yep. Yeah. We don't see them kiss. We don't really see them like embrace at all, but it's just you see the sheet fall and you the know, suggestion, yeah. yeah, and you know you know what that means. It's in part because they're like, well, that's not what we're trying to show. We're trying to show this compatibility through play and through zaniness and through wackiness, but also there was a lot that they couldn't show. So rather than than be told like every other 
line that you had to like cut that out, they just got around it and they worked through the ambiguity. I would say what we have in the contemporary romantic comedy is very different. The production code kind of started to erode in the 1950s when the Supreme Court said, look, this is a monopoly. You can't own the means of production and the means of distribution. So in the 1950s, like European films started to be shown and distributed in the U.S. without the production code administration seal of, a, of approval. Independent films started to be a thing and they just like circumvented the studios and they also didn't get production code administration. The 1960s. It's gone completely. The code has gone completely, and it's replaced with the rating system that we know today, ah. which has its own set of problems. But now sex can be shown. But what I've noticed through my watching of the contemporary romantic comedy is that the contemporary romantic comedy doesn't really know what to do with sex. <laughs> They're very confused by it. Uh, they know they can show it, but they don't know how to show it. They don't know why they're showing it they don't know what they're trying to say through having sex there's one article i read where they say if sex happens it happens off screen but mostly it just does not happen sex is currently frequently portrayed in rom-coms as an immature pastime a phase one one goes through which explains its greater prevalence in comedies aimed at teenage market so like in you've got mail for example both jo joe fox and Kathleen Kelly are living with their partners. Presumably, they have sex. Well, I don't even think you see them kiss, really, their other partners. They could just be, like, kind of platonic roommates, and the movie would look pretty similar. There's a whole sexual ethic in this Chris Evans, Anna Ferris movie, What's Your Number?, which we don't have time to get into, but... Chris Evans is shown to be half nude most of the time. And it, it purports to have this like, you can sleep with whoever you want and it's okay sort of ethic. But it kind of like reneges on that by the end of the movie and is like, no, actually the point is meeting the one person that you're going to marry and you're going to have sex with for the rest of your life. 27 Dresses. I don't think they even realize they did this, but they basically imply that Katherine Heigl, the main character, Jane, that she hasn't had sex in like six or seven years. I don't think they realize that they did that, but they say that she's been in love with her boss and she hasn't dated anyone. And she like fell in love with him the day she walked in and she's been there for like five years. If she doesn't date, then and it's implied that she looks down on her friend who has one night stands, then she's just like... She's basically been sexless because she's been in love with this person for five years. I just I just don't think it, we know what to say about sex because we don't in the romantic comedy. We don't want to have conversations about consent. We don't want to have conversations about agency. We don't want to have conversations about female sexual desire. And if you just never show it, you never have to have that conversation. I think that's why a lot of romantic comedies today, they just... They don't show them dating. They don't show the courtship. The whole point is getting them together. And everything else just happens off screen because if it happens off screen, you don't have to deal with it. Whereas a lot of screwball comedies, it started with them married or it started with them divorced or it started with them in a state of relationship that was different than two strangers. But I think we very often now start with two strangers because we don't want to have to figure out the complicated po contemporary politics of a sexual relationship on screen or just like in society. We don't want to have to see that play out. 
Yeah, I never considered that before. But yeah, I, I for sure see what you mean about like in, in rom-coms, like we usually just get like, and then the next morning something beautiful had happened. Love had blossomed between them. Like if if anything, and usually it's like regret has happened. Yeah. But there's 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 rarely like even like smooching yeah. halfway in the movie, you know? Yeah, and it, it's one of those things that's – I'm not saying – all of these movies should just have like people banging all the time. I don't think these movies, they just don't want to have the conversation because it's awkward. (laughs) So they're kind of treating themselves like they're under the auspices of the production code, even though they are not. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of, it seems like they're treating it like sex is besides the point. Yes. Sex is besides the point. And if you're going to focus on sex, then what you have is wedding crashers. If you're going to focus on sex, then you have these, like, animal gross-out comedies. And we're not in the business of animal gross-out companies. We're in the business of romance. It's a problem when you're saying that, like, romance and sex are... Mutually exclusive. Are mutually (laughs) exclusive. That you can have a romantic comedy that includes sex without it. So, like, What Women Want is another example where, like, Mel Gibson's character has a lot of sex in that movie, but he never has sex with Helen Hunt, the person that he ends up with at the end of that movie. And it's like, okay, what are we saying? (laughs) Are we saying that the person that you are destined to be with is the one that you, like, quote, respect enough to not want to have sex with? Like That's what it sounds like. (laughs) Yeah, because that – and I think – I don't think these movies realize they're doing it. You know, that's like what happens at the end of Wedding Crashers. The person that Bradley Cooper, not Bradley Cooper, he's the bad guy in that movie. The person that Owen Wilson (laughs) ends up with is the person, the one person he wouldn't sleep with. And it's like she is, she is the one. So we've completely divorced sex from romance. We're living under the terms of the production code administration, even though we don't have to. And I know that there are counterexamples. There are movies like No Strings Attached and the other one. Sliding Doors. <laughs> yes, Sliding There's Doors. There's Sex and Sliding Doors. Sex and Sliding Doors. But like No Strings Attached and there's that other one. Friends with Benefits. Friends with Benefits. Where that's like the basis of the whole thing is that they, they have sex. But again, that is divorcing sex from romance because it's saying, no, we're not romantic people that are having sex. We are just friends and we are going to have sex. I just don't think we have any idea what to do with sex in the contemporary romantic comedy. Which is strange because I think that it seems like more and more people are talking about being sex positive, but we're not seeing that reflected in our, our films yet. No, and Maybe I... Maybe that's a different conversation. <laughs> I think it is. It, the thing about a romantic comedy is with some exceptions, we know the ending. The ending is this couple is going to get together. And I think we've just conditioned our brains that on the way to getting the couple together, we don't want to see those people with anyone else. If this person is the end game, like if this is who we are rooting for, we want to see those two people solely focused on one another. And even like the more sex positive characters, they they tend to regret it by the end and feel like they kind of made a mistake. This is one of those cases where it's like the genre, the romantic comedy genre, and what we want the couple to mean to us at the end of the movie makes what we are trying to say about sex very complicated. And I've yet to really see a movie that 
makes sense of that. I would say Palm Springs does a really good job. Listen, I still haven't watched it yet. I still haven't watched, but it's okay. But Palm Springs does a <laughs> does a pretty decent job of it. There's another movie that I really liked called Everybody Loves Somebody, which was a co-production between Mexico and the U.S. that was a rom-com that came out in 2017. And I thought that was really lovely and it was handled very well. So there are examples, but I think we're like, look, it's hard enough to get these two people together. Now you want me to try to figure out this sex thing too? No, (laughs) no, we're not doing it. (laughs) It's too much. It's too hard. All right. So hopefully these next two will be a little quicker, but you know, I'm not counting on it. Probably not. (laughs) So the next thing that I'm interested in looking at is how the screwball gave us the screwball as the hero or the heroine. And the contemporary romantic comedy gives us the quirky heroine who sometimes falls down a lot. This idea of the screwball comedy, we ha- that actually in early reviews of these films, it was the characters that were called screwball, not the films. The characters were, were said to be like wacky or screwy. I forget which movie was being reviewed, but the actress, the reviewer said, This person plays the screwball type of character that she has so often played in movies. So the idea was that these heroes or these heroines who are these screwballs, they are a disruptive force. They disrupt the other person that they that they need. They are like chaos agents, like we've said. So in screwball comedy, the couple, the couple is really unconventional. The courtship is really unconventional. The resolution often involves the couple completely removing themselves from society because the screwball has completely upended their life. Together, there is this like mutual process of re-education where both of them stand to lose something. Both of them stand to gain something. And it inverts meeting each other, like upends their entire life. It presents a world that is turned upside down. So men in these movies are typically stuck in a rut of some sort, though this can often be women. They are shaken out of their stag stagnation. It's not that they're like garden state and they're just like sad all the time. It's they think that they are good. They think that they are thriving and they are shown by this chaos agent that they are living a half-life and they are shaken out of their complacency and they are shaken out of this like realm of well-ordered society. Courtship in these films very often tends to be female-dominated. She has the attraction first. She expresses that she wants this person first. She sees the man she wants. She goes in for the kill. And, And that is what makes them screwy. This like inversion, this separation from society, this like upending of everything they they um value is what makes them screwy. And then the more and more of those heroes and heroines that we saw, the more that that kind of became associated with the genre and they became screwball comedy. But it was the characters that brought this like chaos. It was the characters that brought this like upended energy. It sounds like this is 1930s Manny Pixie Dream Girls. Is that accurate? I was hoping you would say something like that. Ah, I'm so predictable. No, I was hoping you would because I think I think that is why we now have the quirky heroine from contemporary romantic comedy because we see a Susan Vance in Bringing Up Baby who is this like wealthy socialite. That is, 
That's um, what I was thinking of. Yeah, who is this wealthy socialite who is, like, obsessed with, like, rearing this leopard and just, like, wants to get with the stodgy professor. There is also this, like, she has her own life. She has her own desires. She has her own thing that she wants. Motivations. She has her own motivations. And what I have found with the quirky heroine of contemporary rom-com is that she is she is unaware that she is like different. And it's the it's the guy who sees in her this like difference. Whereas the screwballs of the 1930s and the 1940s, they are well aware that they are walking upstream, that they are walking in a different direction. They are very well aware that the way they live their lives is different from popular culture, from society at large. So the man might lecture her, the man might scold her for the way that she lives her life, but he's often proven wrong. He is He's wrong, usually. Even in It Happened One Night, like whenever Clark Gable is like giving Claudette Colbert a lecture about how to like do anything, he ends up kind of being wrong. He thinks he can hitchhike just as well as she can. And she's like, uh, okay, oh, okay. oh, really? You think you can? You think that I'm like <laughs> too demure to like be able to handle this problem? And then she's the one that gets the car to stop, right? So at the end of these films, the couple is often left in this state of limbo. And that's kind of the point. Like bringing up baby, the couple is left like clinging to the remnants of a destroyed dinosaur skeleton. (laughs) Um, They're they're like literally hanging up in the air. That's the whole point is like there's this still at the end of it. There's still this chaotic energy. There's still this lack of resolution. And it's because whoever the screwball is. Some you could say it's the woman, some you could say it's the man, some you could say it's both. They have completely brought chaos into the other person's life. They've blown up the the other person's life completely. And often that means that they remove themselves from society in some way. So the resolution of Holiday is that the Catherine Hepburn character leaves her wealthy family to go on like a boat trip with Cary Grant. It's not this, like, reintegration into society. It's this removal from society. It's not helping the person get a better job. It's leaving that system entirely. It's not about pursuing marriage. It's about adopting a dog together. (laughs) Like, you, you never have, in screwballs, they hardly ever talk about marriage. They never talk about kids. You see more dogs than you see babies. Because the, like, the point is, like, the dog can contribute to the antics and the zaniness and the like the jumping and the leaping and the chaotic energy. Like what's a baby going to do? <laughs> Just like make the couple, you know, like not focus make, on each other. Like make the make couple sound editing difficult and like steal attention away from this like sense of play in the couple. So what I see with the quirky heroine is you have the heroine who falls down a lot. And even if she doesn't fall down a lot, the heroine who by the end of the movie, she just subtly looks different. And this actually comes up a lot. And it kind of shows that like now through love, she's been able to like get her life together in some way. So at the end of You've Got Mail, Kathleen Kelly wears like this beautiful flirty like sundress and like a cardigan. And I think it's the only time we see her in a dress 
like kind of the whole movie. I think at one part party she's wearing like a long sleeve black shirt and a like a long black skirt. But this is like the only dress we see her in. In Set It Up at the end of the movie, you compare the picture of Harper, the main character, at the end of the movie to her at the beginning of the movie, she looks like a different person. The beginning of the movie, her hair is stringy and her clothes are unkept and she's she's like unironed and she's wearing glasses at the end she's in this like red sundress her hair is beautifully styled she's not wearing glasses and she never has an explicit makeover in the movie there's never like a montage scene all of she's all that where she's getting dolled up it's just that there's like slow progression over her being more put together the same thing happens with Katherine Heigl in 27 dresses the problem is that in contemporary romantic comedy it's by and large the woman who even if she is a chaos agent, she's just a lot more quirky and she is kind of shown that she needs to change more by the end of it. She does subtly change more by the end of it. Yeah, so I would say that the you are absolutely right that the contemporary corollary is the manic pixie dream girl because we've, we don't want to leave the couple with the state of unstable energy. We don't want to leave the couple removing them from society. And we have misdirected like who this the screwiness the zaniness the screwball nature is for it's now very often in service of the male character as opposed to in service of like the woman's character and her own agency and growth well that's depressing yeah i mean there are exceptions to this rule obviously (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just never, um, I never thought about it that way now, but now I'm, I'm, I'm like going through my Rolodex of rom-coms in my brain and I'm like, do I have to be sad about all these things now? It's just, I mean, looking, looking through different lenses, which I think is a good exercise when I think about why I enjoy the things that I enjoy. Having someone point out a new lens to look through is very helpful. Oh, I, I, I will love 27 dresses till my dying day. I didn't. I watched that movie. No, no, like, no. Yeah. No, you're yeah. you're not telling me that I that I'm not allowed to like yeah. the things I like. Like yeah. that's not that's not what you're saying. Yeah. And, and that's not what I'm hearing. It's just that yeah, thinking about things from a different perspective is sometimes difficult. Yes. And and to think about you've got mail is like Kathleen Kelly who has been living her life in a way that rejects the expansion of big box stores and she is in denial about the survival of her own store and like it's halfway through the movie that her store goes out of business and she has to completely readjust her life. And, and that Tom Hanks is actually kind of pulling the strings the entire time that she is readjusting her life is like, you know, it's a lens. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lens. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that is, that is like one trend that I, I, I see a lot is that the woman just stands to lose more at the end of like how to lose a guy in 10 days. Those two people have both deceived and fooled each other. She, Andy, played by Kate Hudson, quits her job. And he... Matthew McConaughey Matthew, gets a promotion. Matthew McConaughey gets a promotion. And that that just happens a, a lot. That there's not as much of this mutual re-education where both people stand to lose just as much as the other person. It, it feels like a lot of the times that balance is always tilted unfairly. Which is why I would say go watch Palm Springs. Okay, I'm going to do it, Suzanne. I'll do it when you watch Black Panther. <laughs> okay. All right, so third and finally, 
I'm going to say that the screwball comedy invited us to try to reimagine marriage, whereas the contemporary romantic comedy just wants us to imagine a wedding, <laughs> which is maybe the most depressing thing. So I'm definitely picture. I mean, I, I, I already feel like I know where this is ending up and it's also with like say yes to the dress right? <laughs> oh like, yeah that's absolutely we just grow up grow up with this idea of like i don't know what marriage looks like i guess my friends are married now and it doesn't look all that different from having a, a grown-up healthy relationship but like in my head it's just like a big wedding good to have party. a big wedding big party yeah. i mean what's the thing that everyone has been saying about the past two years of like life and covid and lockdown is I have so many friends that are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to weddings this summer. It's just like we've yeah. all been holding our breath until we can have weddings again, specifically, which no offense to any of my friends who are watching or listening who are planning to get married. I will happily attend your wedding. That is not what this is about. So oh, I am super excited to go to weddings again. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they're the best. So um, fun. But I would say contemporary romantic comedy misses the point of like what makes them so fun uh, so so one thing to remember with the screwball and this kind of reimagining of marriage is that the production code administration forbid the denigration of marriage you couldn't say bad things about marriage you couldn't say as like an institution as an institution maybe. you could not okay. say anything bad about the institution of marriage so katarina gleetry <laughs> says Quote, it would be literally impossible for the 1930s Hollywood film made under the moral guardianship of the production code to explicitly reject marriage. This does not necessarily mean, though, that the film endorses that framework. But the awful truth for screwball comedy is there is no alternative to marriage. You had to have the institution of marriage. You couldn't have these, even though the divorce rate was on the rise, even though all of these circumstances and life was changing in the 1930s and 40s, you couldn't say, well, marriage is bunk. Let's be together and not be married. So what the screwball comedy did instead was it offered in an alternative to the conventional marriage structure. They offered what has been called the companionate marriage. So this whole idea of marry your best friend, marry the person you want to have fun with, that is straight out of the screwball comedy playbook. The alternative in the 30s and 40s to the institution of marriage, which they couldn't get away from, was to say, well, instead, what if marriage looked like this? What if we said marriage was not a place for duty? Marriage was the place for pleasure. What if we said marriage wasn't the spiritual outcome? It was kind of about this like sexual tension and like sense of playful energy. What if we said that marriage wasn't about social responsibility? It was about what makes you satisfied, what brings satisfaction to your life. In the screwball still then, you still see that marriage is treated as kind of this like world of convention as an institution. It's kind of it's kind of poked at a little bit, but it's never it's never like denigrated. So for example, in It Happened One Night, there's a scene where the two main characters, Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable, they have to pretend that they are married so that they can stay together a night in a motel because she's like on the run. So they have to pretend that they're married. And the owner of the motel and his wife do not believe that they are married. So they decide to play like a married couple. And what does that mean? It means he yells at her. It means she pretends to have a nervous breakdown. It means she starts crying. And then it's, it's actually a very funny scene. It's listeners. very funny. It's very funny. 
And they're like yelling at each other. And then everybody leaves. And the owner of the motel says, see, I told you they were a nice married couple. This idea being of like, look, they look, they're they're just like a married couple. He's terrible to her. And she cries a lot. That's like what marriage is. And so at the end of the movie, when they come back to the same motel and they are actually married, but they like enjoy each other's company and they enjoy a sense of play and they ask for this bed sheet that they can drop between their two beds the owner's wife says i don't really know if they're married so (laughs) it happened one night is like completely playing with this idea of why do we love marriage so much if we're saying that this is like what married people act like What if we offered this alternative of what marriage could be? The Awful Truth has a very similar scene where the divorce attorney that Irene Dunn's character consults, he keeps telling her, like, why would you want to get divorced? Marriage is a beautiful thing as he pauses to yell at his wife with this idea of being like, is it, though? And these movies are saying, like, well, okay, well, what would make it a beautiful thing? Like, what would make it a fun thing? Because the awful truth of it is that we can't say less, nobody should get married. So let's propose an alternative for what marriage could look like. And that's why there's this, like, chaotic energy and this zaniness and this play and this, like, there's always talking. The couple is just always talking to each other, always telling jokes, always playing around. And they say, like, well, what if this is what marriage was? What if we made it this? Could we make it this instead? I mean, it sounds great, honestly. (laughs) Juxtaposing it with, like, not fun relationship with your, like, best friend is is, uh, bleak. (laughs) It's, it's, like, real real bleak when you you just, like, point it out like that. Much like I said, the contemporary rom-com doesn't really know what to do about sex. They they also – often don't really tell us anything about what marriage is supposed to be. What does it mean to be married? And they don't have that conversation because they are so focused on weddings, just obsessed with weddings. Movies are focused on the plot of weddings, like 27 Dresses and The Wedding Planner and My Best Friend's Wedding. And if they're not focused on a wedding, there are significant elements of the film that are oriented around weddings. What's your number? The main character's sister is getting married. So, so much of the plot happens around a wedding and set it up. The main character is not getting married, but her roommate just got engaged. So, so much of the of the movie orients around events related to the wedding. There is just this idea that getting to the wedding, that weddings are like emblematic of like true love. I, I think what's interesting about them is that the a movie like 27 Dresses, seems to be questioning the logic of the wedding as the peak of our courtship practices as white heterosexuals. But then at the end, she has a beautiful wedding. So the entire, that movie seems to be saying, what do these weddings even mean? What are these weddings really for? And it ends with a wedding. Like the wedding planner takes place at a wedding event planning company, they make bets on when marriages are going to end. And it's like, well, you seem to be saying something about how like weddings are just like marketed to us, how like romance has just become capital. But then like you don't do anything with that. You still hold up the wedding as like the thing that we should all dream of. And I think that's because we don't really know what we're trying to say about marriage. So it's a lot more fun to just focus on the wedding. 
Yeah, I guess because they're getting into the whole idea of what makes a relationship work long term is just not something that they seem interested in. It's like, what attracts me to this person? What makes us compatible, but not what make, how do we work out fights? Not how do we compromise? Not how do we deal with our mutual finances? Yeah, and like, a wedding that is not of interest. And a wedding is a shortcut to say these two people. Lived happily ever after. Lived happily ever after. These two people are supposed to be together because look at this beautiful wedding. When really we know that statistically between a third and a half of these rom-coms are going to end in divorces. Yeah, and these movies often quote those facts. Which is lazy, I guess. Or maybe people just don't want to see, like, I don't think this is a rom-com. I haven't watched it. Was that movie on Netflix, like a wedding, a marriage story? The one with Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson oh, about yeah, getting... Mar- marriage story. A marriage story? Boy, do I hardcore not want to see that movie. <laughs> about the relationship falling apart. It's like seeing the mechanics of what makes a relationship work and a relationship not work feels like work. Yes. Kind of. Whereas yes. at, at the end when I get to just go to a big party, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I like a party. I like a pretty dress. It's easy. It is easy. And it, like I said, it's a shortcut. It's like a, cl- yeah. it's like a clue to us that this couple is going to be okay. But I, what I find myself being really drawn to in, like, romantic comedies are the movies that just try to, like, say something about what it means to love. And not even necessarily just, like, loving a romantic partner, but what it means to be in relationship with other people. The movie that we talked about for Trash Favorites, How Do You Know? How Do You Know is trying to say something. <laughs> it's trying to say something about the nature of relationship. Reese Witherspoon says something to... Paul Rudd, she says, George, I used to think you were just this silly man. Now everything but you seems silly. It's trying to say something. It might not do it perfectly. It might do it inelegantly, but it's trying. A movie I really liked that I know you did not care for, Mr. Right, with Anna Kendrick and Sam Rockwell. Oh, yeah, I couldn't even finish it. Yeah, well, that movie, the thing I enjoy about it is that it, like, He's like, well, what if marriage was just like doing murder together? (laughs) And you're like, okay, look, if that makes you happy. But like you're trying to tell me something about the nature of of marriage. And again, you might do it inelegantly. You might not do it perfectly, but you're trying something. Palm Springs, that whole movie basically comes down to like, what does it mean for us to belong to each other and have a re- and have a responsibility to like deal with the monotony of our lives because that's what it means to be human. And I'm like you were trying to tell me something. There's so many ways that relationships can look. The contemporary romantic comedy just doesn't really want to like get in there to say like what are we actually saying about marriage? What are we actually saying about weddings? What are we actually saying about what it means to belong to each other? I think we just like settle for less than that. And there's lots of reasons for this. You know, screwball comedy was a very short era. They had like lots of restrictions. They couldn't tell every story because they were prevented from telling every story. And now there's lots of different romance stories we can tell. So I could ramble about this for forever, but that is what I have, Hannah. Well, I think that one thing that I have not seen a lot of screwball comedies and I have seen a lot of rom-coms, but I think that one thing that that the screwballs do is that, I guess, as you pointed out, a lot of them don't start out with like fresh new relationships, which rom-coms do, is that a lot of them start out with 
divorces. And in those relationships, like they do feel really lived in. Like you do feel that these, these people do have a history. And so they, to them, there are things that make their relationship work and that make their relationship not work. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the movie is this, is like partially a journey through why did you think that I was having an affair or what values that we, that we don't share are something that we can work through or, mm. or something like that. And I don't know. It does seem like a lot of rom-coms, which, you know, I, I enjoy rom-coms a lot, but there is a lot less like exploration of why some relationships work in some relationships of, of the work of the work that goes into it. And I think there's also as much as we might mock the, the code for being like, do not talk bad about marriage. There's also, I, I don't think we're as comfortable with the notion of the happy ending being a couple completely removing themselves from society and being like, we have chosen not to participate in this economy that you have set up to like commodify our romance. And that was a trend that kind of started in the 1950s with the way rom-coms happened, that we started linking romance to like consumerism. We just don't really feel super comfortable with with doing that. We know that in Made in Manhattan, it's never going to be Ralph Fiennes who gives up being a senator and comes to live with like J-Lo and her son in the Bronx. Like we know that that's not going to happen. No, like she's going to be brought up into being the wife of a senator. We want to we want to bring people up and into society. And that I don't really know why. I don't know when or how that really started, but I think it can kind of limit what happily ever after looks like if happily ever after requires a very narrow set of expectations. Well, I usually like to blame things on either capitalism or the patriarchy, but in this case, I think it's both. Oh, yeah, I think it is both. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, I think it's both. I mean, when in doubt, capitalism or patriarchy. I mean, I don't know if there's like a takeaway for this, but I would I would say I think there are some contemporary romantic comedies that are still doing this really well. And I think that is the reason why they are standouts, because there are some of them that seem to get at something of like what it means to be in relationship with other people. And then there's others that they might have big Hollywood production budgets, but you get into the ethics of them and you're like, oh, at its core, it's basically a Hallmark movie. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a very interesting to think about what are our values as a society or what are our values as viewers of a certain kind of content? Like what are we what are we after? What do we accept and what do we reject? I think to have to have an expert like you explain why things are the way they are, how X is different from Y and what is the overlap is, you know, even for movies that I've seen, I've seen You've Got Mail more times than I care to discuss. But when you talk about it from a different angle, it's just nice to have something else to look out for and to think about what what is this movie trying to say? Why do I like it? Are there things, you know, like it's something that, actually doing the podcast has made me think about a lot is why do I like the things that I like? Mm-hmm. And so when we when we talk about the things from what we consider to be like canonical movies from the 30s and 40s and how they're influencing the movies that we still, 
you know, canonical rom-coms from the 90s and early 2000s to think about why certain things are successful, which values have carried over and which values have been kind of turned on their heads. I, I just think it's a very interesting conversation. I'm like, as I said, really looking forward to going back and watching some of those movies and watching some of the movies for the first time. And I know that we do this double ending thing every yep. week and we always say we're not going to, but that point that you just made, I think is really good in that I I also want to be very careful. And I meant to say this much earlier as holding up these screwball comedies as like paragons of virtue because they had their own problems. Like, they, Oh yeah, for sure. They, I almost didn't want to say I like yeah. Philadelphia story because there is physical, physical abuse in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, there are one I just most recently watched is the awful truth from 1937. There are two characters of color in that movie and they are both servants and one of them is a Japanese actor named uh, Mickey Morita, um, I believe his name is. He was born in Japan, and he has a very thick accent in the movie. And I'm not certain if that is his accent or if he was asked to have that accent by the director. But the I'm pretty sure the only thing he says in that movie is jujitsu. And so, like, racist archetype still. So I... I'm not saying that these movies are perfect and all contemporary romantic comedy should be like them. There were no queer people in these movies. There was there was a lot that was left out. But I think what I am trying to say is that just like a lot was left out then, there's a lot that we are leaving out now. And we might have more representation, but we still don't know what we're saying about marriage that representation hasn't changed the fact that we are still very confused about what we are trying to tell people their place is in a relationship. And our movies are reflective of that. Also don't have all that much more representation in some cases, but that's a a topic for a topic for a different day. (laughs) Yeah. We'll solve the representation in Hollywood problem tomorrow. It's definitely better than the thirties, but it's still not great. Anyway, that, that was our third our third ending. So how about we wrap up with a fourth ending? Yes, by asking you to give us all <laughs> of your thoughts. You can get involved in the discussion by tweeting at us or commenting on this episode's post on Instagram. Both places we are at WellHearPod. You can also email us at wellhearpod at gmail.com. And just a reminder, we do have that website, wellhearpod.com, where we will link the names of all the movies that I referenced in this episode. There are a lot of them and give helpful articles if you would like to read a little bit more. Don't forget to go to wherever you get your podcasts and click that. It was the patriarchy the whole time button, (laughs) which you might know as a follow button. And until next time, I'm Suzanne, and I think every rom-com should include a dog. More dogs, less babies. And I'm Hannah, and I think Katherine Hepburn is an underrated comedic genius. And well, here we are. Show me one more tree, but make it evergreen. Evergreen. I see a mother there, a lover and a child.